Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. We're doing something a little different tonight. We're changing it up because we're having on a guest that we just recently had on a while ago. We had on uh, Dr. Dwayne Brad to talk about what were proposed vague policy ideas that Danielle Smith had rolled out or was going to be rolling out. And then she did the the rollout and nobody was prepared for it. And so in order to put a better lens on it, it's a proper context um, and to get some analysis of what's since been clearly defined, uh, we're very excited to welcome back to the show, Dr. Dwayne Brad. Dr. Brad, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Nate. And and in the, the interest of transparency, I would say that I reached out to you to ask for a second opportunity because we didn't get a chance to really talk about this. Uh, I have a lot of strong feelings about this, and so much has occurred since that moment. Almost every day there's been something new, including today, um, and, and that's why I wanted a, a chance to, I, I wouldn't say correct the record, but clarify the, the record because we'd given the interview prior to her announcement and yeah. this was not expected of how far it went the, the for context for anybody who's just catching up now you should a go back and listen to that episode because we made some funnies and it's worth listening to but the conversation with dr bratt came after danielle smith announced on her radio show that there was going to be policy coming and at that point the the timeshare sales video hadn't dropped yet uh, and all of the clarification around the policies hadn't dropped yet and the multiple interviews hadn't happened yet. So there's been a lot that's gone on from Daniel Smith on her radio show saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to be introducing some policies on that. We're going to be making an announcement. Uh, it's, it's, it's had everybody in shock. So, Dr. Bratt, to start with, let's go to Wednesday, January 31st. You're sitting at home, maybe you're on the Twitter machine, Danielle Smith drops her video. What are your thoughts as you're watching the video? So it was, I'm watching the beginning and you've got, I mean, this was Daniel Smith at her best as a communicator. And so you need to separate the communication from the content. So the communication, it's just her. She's speaking into a camera. She's got a script. They've got the music. They've got the stock footage of children. She's saying, you know, I want to talk to trans youth. You, I love you. I respect your decisions. I want to talk about adults. And then we get into the content. And I'm going, these don't connect with one another. How do you say we love you? We respect your choices. When, in fact, everything you're talking about is removing choices, choices of uh, teens, because uh, I don't want to use the phrase children. We're talking about teens here. We're not talking about seven-year-olds. We're talking about removing parental rights. No matter how many times she said parental rights, when you actually look at the implications, she is removing parental rights. Um it just it was just such a jarring gap between the visuals, the sound, the tone of the voice, some of the language, and then the content. It, it might have read very differently if you just read the script 
um, as opposed to to watching this. So um, that's how I viewed it. And it was pretty apparent that this was this went much further than what we've seen in New Brunswick and, and much further than what we've seen in, in Saskatchewan. One of the things that has been particularly striking about these policies is the, you know, there's there's very real questions to be asked of, is this they she doesn't know what she's talking about or is she deliberately exploiting the fact that most people won't know what she's talking about? And I'll use the puberty blockers as an example. She's she said, oh, no, we're not we're not eliminating puberty blockers. You just can't get them till you're 15 and you're most of the way through puberty, which defeats the entire point of the puberty blockers. Wait, I'm confused. Is Do you think that that's her not grasping what these treatments are supposed to do? Or is this her saying, ah, people won't know? A bit of both. In, in the first part, um, because they never did real consultation with anybody, um, you know, maybe a handful of, of specific individuals, but no, no doctors, no teachers, no counselors, you know, uh, not real members of the LGBTQ community, you know, maybe a couple individuals. But in the lack of that consultation, you don't know what you don't know. Um, and, and we've seen that with the statistics that have rolled out. Um, so I think that is part of it is they because they haven't done real consultation, there's a lot of gaps in their own knowledge of this. You have the sport minister going, I don't know how many trans athletes there are in Alberta. Right. Uh, the second, though, is not in her language, um, but her supporters language have been much more vitriolic, much more demonizing. And she is playing a bit of that game with a human face and a smile. So, you know, Nate, should children be getting gender affirming surgery? Well, no, don't. no, they don't. But they're not. It's not happening anyway. But you say that, that we will not allow this thing that's not already happening. You are appealing to a lack of knowledge. So I think it is a combination of two. There are things that they simply don't know because they haven't done the proper consultation. And they also realize that there are so many, the people that are really riled up about this, that really are demanding government action, have so many misconceptions and completely factual errors. She is playing on some of that. To me, it's... <sighs> Because it's so egregious and because it's not happening, I have I, there's some things that I find myself wondering. I mean, the, the metaphor that I keep going back to in my own head is you might as well just say, you know what? We're going to make it so people can't leave severed goat heads on your doorstep every second Tuesday. We're going to make that a law. But it's not happening. Oh, it doesn't matter. We're going to make sure it, it's never happened. Like, what? But the, the other part that I find, and I, you know, I have no doubts. We've seen Daniel Smith historically she likes to present so i i think that's a bit obviously that's a bit of an exaggeration of course i would i would say it's more truthiness that there's an element of truth there we do have teens under the age of 18 on hormones 
uh, on puberty blockers for a variety of reasons. We do have uh, top surgeries. We've now discovered about two dozen a year, again, for a variety. So there's a bit of truthy there as opposed to the separate goat head. But even with, and that's what she's playing on. Yeah. It's, It's a rhetorical game. Even within those top surgeries, though, I mean, there's a there's a journalist whose name escapes me, and that's embarrassing, uh, who actually got the numbers from Alberta Health for, I think it's 2022. And of the 26 surgeries, top surgeries that were done on people under the age of 18, eight were related to gender affirming care. So that's if you break it all down. So when she says we're going to stop this uh, and then the statistics roll out, well, it's 26 that. uh the amount of people who sent me this National Post article from the fall about breast surgeries under the age of 18 with no provincial breakdowns, you know, it says as young as 13. Yeah, there was one, one at 13. So, again, it's 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 not a lie per se, It's but it's not really truth either, right? There's There's some omissions, some significant omissions. In, in her state. Yeah, it's but this gets me to the 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 next piece for me, because the question that I find myself asking is she has said so many things that are just demonstrably false, whether we're talking about the the well, we'll still have puberty blockers available. Well, not to anyone who needs them. So thumbs up, I guess me as a 47 year old guy can go get my puberty blockers. That'll help my quality of life i'm sure um but she's also you know she's talked about the clinic in in england that is closing well it's expanding so on a technical reading you can probably say that but it's not accurate how does like i guess the question that i want to ask is how is there nobody in the room that knows to a actually look up what's actually going on given that they have the resources of the entire government at their disposal and b say well you're going to get nailed on all of these different things as soon as people take a step back you're going to get nailed on all of these different things is this the smartest strategy and again i agree with you 100 percent. the video was a masterpiece of communications the people will write papers on that paper if they haven't started already i'm sure there's some eager policy students who are like i know what i'm writing about but how does nobody how is there nobody in the room to say you're getting all of this wrong a you don't know how wide the circle was who knew what was coming right um the other is a very different political environment that we're dealing with now. So if you oppose this, you're an NDP hack. You're a, you know, you're a leftist media. So all of the groups that have been mobilizing and have been organizing, they've got a strategy on how to discredit them. So those that do the fact checking, well, of course, you know, you you hate conservatives and, you know, you, you would rather have Rachel Notley as premier or you're a Trudeau lover. That's become very effective. And, and that prevents if you if we can't even agree on facts, it, it makes it tough. So, again, I get back to that truthiness when she talks about the changes going on in Europe and many European countries on these issues. And it is occurring. 
with deep consultation with medical experts and and educators. None of that is occurring here. Um, and so I teach public policy and I have these assignments. Uh, I call it two-stage memo to cabinet. And the, the second one is about identifying options to deal with a problem. But the first memo is to define a problem, to explain, because, and I keep saying to my students over and over again, you can't provide solutions if you don't know what the problem is. So I'm listening to the video and I'm watching the press conference and I'm seeing the statistics roll out and I'm going, what is the problem that is being faced here? And I don't believe there is a policy problem at play. Um, you break all of these things down. Uh, this is a political problem for the premier. It's not a policy problem. Because if you cannot tell me how many trans athletes there are in Alberta, then how do you provide a solution when you don't even know what the problem is? If you don't have accurate statistics on gender-affirming surgeries, the uh, um, um, puberty blockers, or response rates about whether they regret their surgery later on, which those studies have been done. And guess what? It's well over 95% that are pretty darn happy uh, with what they've done. So there is no policy problem here that I see. Uh, there is a political problem and there is a perceptual problem. And that's where this comes in. I'm going to get to that in a sec. But the other thing that I just wanted to hit on is, do you think that Daniel Smith has any concept of the idea? And it goes by a bunch of different names. The one that I'm most familiar with is a red team. Uh, but the idea that if you're going to roll out a big thing, then you have a group of people whose sole job it is, is to blow as many holes as it in advance so that you're able to eliminate those holes and be prepared for it. There's there's that's their whole reason for being. And we've seen repeatedly policy after policy, after policy, after policy from Daniel Smith, whether we're talking about this, whether we're talking about the renewables, whether we're talking about the children's Tylenol, I could go on. I wish I couldn't where it seems like there has not been any of that sort of responsible uh, opposition strategy, which is a basic fundamental building block um, in play. No, there, there is no red team. We, we see groupthink. You surround yourself with the same like-minded people and even those who may disagree, self-censor. And I go back to the Sovereignty Act. This was Bill 1 of the Premier, and they had to make significant amendments, significant amendments, days after releasing it, hours after releasing it, uh, because they didn't see those those holes put in there. We're seeing the same thing occurring, as you said, with, with pensions. So, no, I don't see that that is occurring. Do you, do you know how to tell her she should do that? I have had plenty of conversations over the years with, with Danielle Smith, and not since she became free. Fair enough. So let's talk about, okay, so it's safe to say this is not a policy problem. This is not a policy issue. There's no demonstrable need for any of these uh, regressive, I don't know, I would say hateful and bigotive uh, initiatives. What to your read is the political problem that Danielle Smith 
thinks she's solving by putting a, a trans kids in the crosshairs to use her verbiage. I will say I'll start off with the more gentle one that we are seeing, not just in Alberta, but it explains what's going on in Saskatchewan. It explains what's going on in New Brunswick. It explains what is going on in Florida or Texas. And that is, in some cases, some legitimate concerns that parents have that stuff is going on in schools that they are unaware of. And that's why you see poll after poll, when you ask them, should parents be notified? Absolutely. So I think there is some of that. Now, that's been drummed up by certain groups, but I think there is a legitimate concern that they have. Whether that is based on truth, whether that's based on mythology, it doesn't matter. There is a legitimate concern there. Uh, but part of being a leader is to properly address that and not play to the worst possible instincts. The second is much more basic, and that is the role of Take Back Alberta and, and David Parker. And I have been saying uh, for months that the real test with Smith and TBA is going to be on trans issues. She does not want to touch this. Uh, she has avoided this for as long as she could, but she you saw it with the rallies last fall. She is being pushed in a direction. And I think that ultimately that's the political problem that she is is facing. Um, it, it, the, the timing of all of this, the leadership review in early November and announcing the suite of policies will come out after that. Um, it, it's pretty clear where this is where this is coming from. And um, there is, and I said, you know, this will be a test of her because you've got the TBA, which I believe is a minority force in this province, but very um, powerful within the UCP. I mean, they control the board. Uh, they take credit for pushing Kenny out. They take credit for putting Smith in. Now they want payback, and the payback's going to be on the backs of trans kids. Um but there's also, I think, a larger group of, of Albertans that is that finds this all very distasteful and nasty and, and evil. And we've seen that with uh, the rallies that have strung up over over the uh, over the last few few days. Um, and so that's why she didn't want to wade into this. But I think she's being forced into this. And this goes against, I think, her own personal beliefs. And I think that is important, but also sad. Because when you hear her speeches from 2013 and 2014 as the Wild Rose leader, working with the NDP and the Liberal Party of Alberta on gay straight alliances against the Prentice government, that's the Daniel Smith libertarian, live and be lived, social philosophy, pro-choice. But she also got pushed out by her party for a lot of those beliefs, and she doesn't want that to happen again i want to go back just to to some of the 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 wordage that you used when you're talking about the the parental concerns just because i can i can see the the twitter machine revving up already when you're saying that there's legitimate parental concerns correct me if i'm wrong but what you're saying is those parental concerns exist 
they're not necessarily founded in reality on any sort of major scale. It's like if I'm really, really scared of um, like one of the xenomorphs from the Alien series showing up at my door and that's a reality for me and I'm really, really scared of it. And every day I get up and I'm like, ah, is there a xenomorph out there? And then before I go to bed at night, I double check to make sure there's not a xenomorph out there. That's that is a very real fear that I'm experiencing, but it's not grounded in any sort of demonstrable reality. Is that a safe way to say that? Yeah, but you're also misinterpreting what I'm saying as well. I think that's part of it with some. But you ask a survey question and you go, Nate, you want to know what name and pronoun your child is being used in school? Should we inform the parents about this? You're going to say, I, most parents would go, yes, I would like to know that. I would like to know the classes that my child is taking and how they're being created and what is going on. And if there's a significant shift, disconnect from what I'm seeing when they walk out the door to what's happening at school, I think most parents would say yes to that in a, in a survey. And that's what we're we're seeing. So I think we need to to separate those. And most of them would go, I'm pretty sure I know the answer. Uh, you know, I have a good relationship with my child, but I would want to know. And I don't think that's that's not a demonization. There is demonizations going on, but I think the average ordinary parent, they're just saying, Yeah, I want to know what's going on in my kid's school. And I think that that's that's fair. The 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 statistic that I have juxtaposed this against, though, is that when we're talking about trans kids specifically, it's 62 percent feel like they are they're well supported in their homes. And that's great for 62 percent of kids to feel like they're well supported. Fantastic. But it was pointed out that leaves 38 uh, percent. Yeah, that's that's not. And not. you would just I mean, we're talking about trans kids today. A decade ago, we were talking about gay kids, right? And there were, we all know kids or parents and, and the kid finally comes out to the parents and the parent looks and goes, yeah, I've known. I've always known. You've never had any interest in the opposite sex. I was just waiting for you to come forward to them. But you're dealing with a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 17-year-old. You don't necessarily know how they're going to react so let's talk about the take back alberta influence i mean we saw david parker uh during the the rallies earlier in the last later in the last year i guess would be the right way to say that um where he was standing up uh, with the microphone screaming at the the people who were trying to show support for uh trans kids calling them the enemy yes the, yeah the so i mean his language which he has continued, by the way. He, obviously, he feels emboldened by it, all this. He's not the one going, I want to know what's going on with my kid's life in school. He is saying teachers are indoctrinating and they are turning kids trans and we will get you. We will find you. We're going to take over the school boards. The school boards are going to fire the principals and the principals are going to fire the teachers. Right. That is a very different perception than the ordinary parent just going, I want to know what's going on at schools. He is blaming teachers. He thinks they're becoming teachers for this sole purpose. Um, we've got UCP candidates, um, some in caucus, some have been removed from caucus, some were removed as candidates 
who also accept this uh, going on about kindergarten teachers showing hardcore pornography in class uh, or, you know, the, the kitty litter boxes and all of that garbage. But there is a group of people that fundamentally believe that uh, he sees teachers as groomers and he sees trans people as anti-human. And so um, Smith is not saying any of that. But well, her base of support is. I mean, she's not saying those extreme things, but I found it particularly telling. And I got to say again, uh, Vashi, damn, that was an interview. Like, I have been wondering since Smith got in, what does it take to do an interview with Smith? Because she won't do one with me. Uh, so what is what is what does it take to to have an interview with Smith where you hold her to accountable? And Vashi gave a masterclass on that. But during that interview, Smith said the the people who practice medicine and are doing it without any evidence whatsoever. So, you know, that fits with the narrative that she had all through covid. And she's definitely denigrating physicians. So, like, where do you how much overlap do you think there is yeah. between Parker? Well, and, and Vashi Capellas uh covered danielle smith when she was at global edmonton so there oh, is the a history text. there yes yeah the famous uh piss off profane, yeah piss yeah <laughs> so i think that helps right that that's how you can have those sort of accountabilities when you know the person know the file she's been in ottawa but still follows alberta politics um and uh now has a much bigger profile and so so can do that it was it was just such it was like watching a I would almost say and those who know me know what high praise this will be and will be the only ones probably. But it was like watching a live episode of the West Wing. Like it was just it had that Sorkin esque level of dialogue that Vashi was throwing at her. And it was just uh, it's beautiful. Well, that's how the West Wing solved every problem it's with a, a major speech. Right. Know? You know, yeah. nothing wrong with that. If only we could elevate ideas. Um and, and I will say this is not the only time Smith has played this two-level game. You see it over the pensions as well. She has been very careful in her pension discussion never to link it to Trudeau's energy policies and, and as leverage against Trudeau. But she lets her supporters say that. And if you listen to any of the town halls, you didn't have to hear too many calls before people will say, this is how... You know, if, if Trudeau would just get rid of the carbon tax, we'd stop talking about the pensions. So that's why I say there's there's a two level game going on where she's playing the high road and she's letting the others go on a on a low road. And I'm not sure, again, if that makes it better or worse, because she knows that that's going to happen. Where's the line between manipulation and cowardice? I think she is showing political cowardice here. Uh, because, as I said, this fundamentally goes against her personal beliefs. She is the premier of this province. She is the leader of the party. She just won a majority election. Um, she has the ability to stand up to these people, and she's chosen not to. Um, so, I, I, yeah, it's not uh, it's not profiles and courage after all, uh, and. Even the timing of the leadership review, Jason Kenney, the great political strategist, should have thought of this, is have the leadership review six months after an election. 
Because I tell you, if the leadership review had been in November of 2019, Jason Kennedy's still the premier of this province right now. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the implications of this because we've seen some of it play out in in real time. And of course, it's it's very complicated. The the day after the announcement, we see the robocalls. And that's turned into a a murky little exercise in wait what? Um where the these robocalls asking about well should kid you know if kids shouldn't be able to get puberty blockers should they yeah. be able to get an abortion if they're underage without and then here's your options parental consent or no consent or uh, let let people make their own decisions um and it turns out that it appears that that poll was put into the field by somebody who has very close ties to an organization that has very close ties to the current minister. And, ah, this turns into a thing real quick. Um, but what, what do you think that, and again, this is where I, I find myself going is the group think that's occurring in government. So overwhelming that nobody thought, Hey, if you come out and say these things, there's going to be people who feel like you've just rung the bell and now it's their time to try to pick up their ball and run with it. Because certainly the rhetoric that's been uh, leveraged against people online has has reached a pitch that I don't think I've seen before. But we do have these uh, anti-abortion groups coming forward. We do have these other people who are coming forward and saying, well, what about this? What yeah, are if, you be if you believe in parental rights, you know, um, there's it's it's a logical extension of that. Uh, and, uh, that whole robocall thing, I mean, I saw the slide deck before people started connecting the dots and I said, there's just so many red flags with this. I do a lot. I, I'm not a pollster, just like you're not a journalist, but I, uh, I, uh, I know pollsters and I read polls and I organize polls, but I'm not a pollster and it raised every red flag company I'd never heard of. Nobody is acknowledging who it got commissioned by. No demographic breakdown. As obvious a push-pull as a push-pull could be. Um, we don't even know if those numbers are true. Even with all that, you could have simply paid stuff up. You know? And uh, let's just say if I was running a media outlet, I might have paused a bit and talked to a few people before I rolled the story out and then had to change a story and I had to change a story again and then change it again. Uh, but, but if you are going to make that parental rights argument, you're falling right along that line. Now, but, and I'm going to hop on the parental rights thing as a pivot point here, because as much as Daniel Smith is saying, this is about parental rights and preserving kids choice to not have uh, life-changing treatments done again I go back to so I guess we're just waiting on cancer then and hoping for the best uh, yeah. and again I know that's a hyperbolic example but I do that so what are you going to do um, but she talks about the parental rights piece but there's so much of this that is actually as you said earlier removing choice for parents it's removing parents from the ability to have informed medical conversations with their their kid the the care team that's involved in taking care of their kid as they're they're dealing with this that now it's just nope 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 you don't get to um yeah. but yeah, so same, you're 
you keep talking about parental rights, but you cannot interfere. You cannot work with doctors, medical professionals. Pierre Polyev said the same thing today. No puberty blockers below the age of 18. <laughs> because I support parental rights. What if the child and the parent support that for a 16-year-old? or seven? Nope, nope, not until they're 18, not until they're an adult. That's not about parental rights. Um, and so... When they had the press conference the next day, it was all about choice. It wasn't about choice. It was about the removal of choices. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was it was Orwellian uh, to see that choice for, uh, I think it was choice for youth and parents. No, they were removing choices. They were removing options. And here's another little thing I want to talk about. And this is 18. And I was getting in these debates and discussions, and I got a bit Socratic with people. Um, and part of that is, is in my other life, I, I've got a sport administration background. I do a lot of work on long-term athlete development, where we make a distinction between your chronological age and your development age. So, for example, I can show you a picture of four 14-year-old uh, athletes, three of them over six feet tall, one of them under five feet tall, same age. Right. So you've got this chronological age. So. 18, you, you can vote 18, you're considered an adult. Well, it used to be 21. Um, you know, to drink in Alberta, it's 18, it's 19 in Ontario, it's 21 in the United States. Driving is at 16. Have anyone thought about trying use as adults for committing major crimes at 16 or 17? Absolutely. Right. So it's it's a continuum. Now, yes, when you're talking about voting and driving, you've got to actually have a date. Right. You can't just pick and choose based on the emotional, physical development. of it. So I know all of that. But the point is, these are arguments. These are discussions of what we used to do. And so to have a hard, fast line and said 18. Yes. Below 18. No. Once you turn that age, everything changes. That's not the way we do anything else, including the criminal justice system and the same people that would demand a 16-year-old, someone who'd committed murder to be tried as an adult would say, sorry, but they're not mature enough to make a decision about their gender identity. Yeah. So I mean, it's... you need to go off on a segue there. No, that was good. Um, and it, 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 to me, it also plays into the point that Puberty hits kids at different ages. It's not Absolutely. Like at 13 years old or 12 years old. And, and one days, of the like, reasons, man, there it is. major reason for puberty blockers is to delay an early onset of puberty. Yeah. So it's, it's stupid. I think we can both agree. <laughs> yes. It's they're trying to solve a problem, a policy problem that doesn't exist. And this is where I want to talk about one of the other elements that I know that you're quite passionate about. You kind of alluded to it there. So I'm going to use it as a, as a natural place to take it, this part of the conversation. It's not just saying, hey, parental rights, we're not going to let you decide things for your kids. It's also saying, hey, do you like the sports? We're going to be incredibly prescriptive to all of the private sports organizations out there as to how they're allowed to conduct their business going forward. What are your thoughts on the whole, well, 
we don't want to have those, I don't know, 40 people, trans people who play sports in Calgary. I'm making up a number to be clear. Uh, we don't want them playing with people who want to play with them because David Menzies might show up and make a short Rebel News segment out of it. So a couple things is the, this issue about sport has really ramped up over the last couple of years. Um, and it's usually the, the next person who sends me a picture of that NCAA swimmer, I'm going to snap, right? We don't make policies around an isolated case. Nobody is changing their identity with all the stigmatization that goes with it and the hormones and the surgery to play amateur sport to get a trophy. I am sorry. But she put a wide swath. She wasn't talking about kids' games. This no, was she's talking about adults. Right? She's talking about adults. So the sporting community was not consulted. We were blindsided by this because we have been developing policies with scientific data over the last several years. So Sport Canada has a policy and the Alberta government current sport policy is based on the Sport Canada policy. Okay. And it is based on the concept of choice that an athlete can choose based on their gender identification. So I run a lacrosse league for those over the age of 17 um, in, in Alberta, but we also have teams in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. So anywhere and both male and female divisions, roughly 1,500, 1,600 athletes. We have trans athletes uh, amongst those 15 or 1,600. I can't tell you the exact number, but it's below the number of fingers I've got on one hand. Okay, So when I hear you need to create special open divisions and co-ed divisions and trans divisions for two or three players. No, for two or three players? Really? Um, it, 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 this is, we already have a problem with trans youth not participating in sports. This just furthers that divide. Uh, we have uh, to, to make things complicated, in our junior divisions, they're from ages 17 to 21. So we've got minors and majors on the same team, in the same league. And we're not the only one. This occurs in high school rugby. You know, some of those spring sports, you've got 18-year-olds playing against 17-year-olds. Uh, minor hockey, junior hockey, um uh, so this is quite common where we have that. How do we make those separations? Um, the fact that our sport minister doesn't know how many trans athletes there are, I think is telling. Um, and so we're talking uh, about community groups. We're talking about those that get funded, partially funded. Um, you know, so the Alberta Lacrosse Association gets funding from the provincial government. You know, it's like forty or fifty thousand dollars in a two million dollar budget, but there's some funding there. Um, would we lose funding if we didn't adopt these policies? And what if we're in contravention of our national policies? Where does that put us? Right? If if they if Ottawa is saying these are the Sport Canada policies 
you need to follow. And the Alberta government says, no, 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 no. That's not what we're going to do. You're going to follow this. What do I do when dad says one thing and mom says the other, right? That just leads to greater, greater confusion. We already have female athletes playing on male teams. Um, sometimes because they're a goalie, which is a different position. Um, others because they're in a small town and they're either playing with the boys or they're not playing at, at all. And I'm worried that this stigmatizes even more so. We saw a, a really ugly incident in Kelowna, uh, the Okanagan over the summer uh, with nine and 10 year old soccer players where the parents were convinced that that girl was a boy and please show us that she is not, you know, and you're going to have that. What happens when you have the girl who's taller or bigger or looks more masculine, you're going to have these witch hunting going on because now you put a target on their backs right, right across the board. And quite frankly, I, I do blame uh, the Western standard and, and the rebel, the amount of stories they do on a weekly basis on athletes. Um, it's they're priming that pump. Right. And, and it's usually the same athlete with story after story after story after story after story. And are you really going to do that for, you know, a medal that you hang around your neck? You're going to change your whole life just for that purpose. It just doesn't match the the smell test. I mean, the thing that's fascinating to me is the the inability to think through the arguments. You have people who say, oh, we don't want teenage trans girls uh, playing with regular girls because they've got all of the advantages of puberty. And I immediately go, if only there was some sort of therapy that uh, was demonstrated to, I don't know, block the the puberty advantages from happening so that this wouldn't even have to be a frigging conversation. Um, you know, Daniel Smith is on, on, she's doing interviews where she's talking about if kids are on puberty blockers, if kids are on hormone therapy, ah, they yeah. got to have their bone density monitored. But in the same breath, she's talking about, well, you know, these kids who have gone through puberty, they have all of these advantages. And it's like, pick one, just pick one, if you could, please, because it's so disingenuous. Yeah. And, uh, again, um, we've already got it's always the male transitioning to the female. That's the fixation. It's never the other way around. So the, the amount of numbers that we start to break down. So let's assume we'll use the number 0.25%. Let's assume 0.25% of the population are trans. Of that percentage, roughly 50-50 are going in each direction. Okay. So the amount of, um, Transitioning females is now what, you know, 0.1 of a percent. What's the percentage of those 0.1 that are in athletics? Right now we're getting, now we're actually talking about single digits or two digits in the entire province of Alberta. We are going to completely reshape everything we do because of those small numbers. You know, and again, is that why they're doing it to, to play sports? I, I don't think so. Well, especially non-professional sports. No, like... <laughs> you pay to play. You're paying to play these sports. 
Now, yes, there is a greater challenge in team sports and in contact sports. But as I said, I deal with a contact sport uh, and we've been able to make arrangements and we respect the confidentiality of the athlete. And that's important too. Are, do we want genital checks for athletics? For I, I don't think we, yeah, for kids, for adults, for anybody. Yeah. You know, like it's, um, what's the problem that's being solved here? And if it's because we have this NCAA swimmer, then great. Ban, the Alberta government should ban all NCAA trans athletes. Now you have to explain why that joke's funny to the audience, because there'll be some people who will go, wait, What? Because it's an American sport organization <laughs> or the Olympics or all of this sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's to me, and again, it really only underscores, you know, we've had conversations in, on the show over the last little while about the risk and the danger that Take Back Alberta presents. We've talked about the fact that they've said that they're going to take over school boards. And here we have a functional example, a very real example, where there's no definable policy that this is addressing. And Danielle Smith, who many people have said is uh is someone who does not hold these views she's willing to subvert and compromise her own views out of fear from take back alberta and this is why i don't my personal take speaking only for myself is that it is impossible to underestimate the threat that take back alberta and the hatred that they use and the fear that they use the it's under it's impossible to underestimate the size of that threat because they've got the premier rolling out policy that's going to kill kids because she's afraid of David Parker. Absolutely. And so when people respond back to me, say, okay, if you're right and these surgeries aren't occurring, then why are you up in arms about them? Right. Why are you so concerned when she says she will ban surgeries when the surgeries aren't occurring for minors? The answer is she's demonizing the entire trans community and putting judgment into medical professionals. We already know that the medical professionals are have been attacked over COVID. And believe it or not, the same people who uh, attack medical professionals over COVID are attacking them over trans issues. So if they roll out the policies after all of this is said and done and the AGM occurs and she gets her 77 or 90% or whatever, and it comes out and it's a big nothing burger and people see, see, no, nothing to worry about. Why were you having rallies? Why were you so angry? Why did you swear on air? Blah, blah, blah. Because you have demonized innocent children and they, they're going to die. Uh, and that's not too strong a word because we already have that data. We already know the suicide rates, the homeless rates of trans people. And now you have made that situation worse instead of better. And, you know, I go to the the footage that's been making the rounds on social media of Daniel Smith's impassioned speech in 2012 in the legislature. She cannot 
say that she doesn't know these things because she spoke these things into record. She spoke about the risks of demonizing these kids. And I mean, granted, in 2012, it was more the GSA conversation uh, and the parental rights conversation. But she literally used examples of kids who had been beaten and removed from their homes. Uh, and she uh, appears to have been broken down because of the enormity of the thing. And so she I don't I, she, to me, she doesn't get to say, well, I don't know about that anymore because you did. You did, and you broke down in the legislature, and good for you for doing that. But what you're doing now is selling out not only yourself and your personal convictions, but you're selling out all of those vulnerable kids that you acknowledged existed, and now you're pretending they don't. You're 16. You're 17. You're having these thoughts. You, you've you always kind of known in some fashion that the body that you're in doesn't quite represent your views. You're confused. You don't know where to turn. And all of a sudden you're being told you can't really go to your parents. You can't go to your doctor. You certainly can't go to your teacher. Uh, you can't go to a coach. It just makes it so much worse for, for that poor individual and, and the thoughts that they're going through. Uh, and the decision-making process about when to come open. And you talk to gay adults now, uh, and the question, you know, that often comes up, when did you come out? You know, um, was it 15? Was it 25? Was it 35? How did that conversation go? People have lost friends over that. Uh, they've lost relationships with relatives. Even if their parents are accepting, others haven't. And they're still gay people in the closet today and now we're picking on a different group a smaller group an even more vulnerable group and making it that much worse what surely we would have learned with what we did to gay people over the centuries over the decades making it illegal and raiding bathhouses and outing them um and we're going to do it all over again I mean, I think that one of the answers that I've heard the most from folks when I've asked them in conversation, so when when did you decide to come out? The A, I think one of the things that's important to realize is that it's not just one and done. It's every relationship, every conversation that you that you have. But B, the answer is almost always rooted, if not literally, certainly figuratively, in the the sentiment of when I felt safe. And these whole policies move farther and farther away from that like the the outro as i derisively call it of that video where she was like hey so if you talk to anyone we're gonna make sure your parents know but make sure you talk to people that was just and and the phrase you used was feel safe that is different than being safe because as i said you know, people have come out as, as gay or trans to their parents, and they're perfectly fine with it. They kind of already knew, but it took that long for the the youth, the teen, to feel safe, even if it ended up being a very safe, easy environment. And who do you come out 
too. Even people with good relationships with their parents will still say things differently to a coach or a, uh, a community leader or a teacher that they may not say to their parents. I think one of the things that's most striking about about this, and we had a little 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 pre conversation before we started the interview proper, um, because you have. Uh, spoken with daniel smith in the past on multiple occasions you do have a, a you have historically had um a friendly relationship uh, i would say so yeah okay i was i was trying to walk my way towards that yeah. and you are expressing shock that when when she came out with these policies because they're so antithetical with who you believed her to be i think we also saw that this weekend at one of the protests um, where uh, Nahed Nenshi spoke directly to the premier um, and and said, this isn't who you are and, and you need to stop this. Uh, so I think that it's really important to highlight that even the people who aren't Smith supporters, but people who have known her are saying, holy shit, you've sold out. Yeah, if she had come out with a pronoun policy um, that would have been semi-consistent with what we saw in New Brunswick and Saskatchewan. You could have a debate about that, but when she went so much further, uh, you could understand maybe being pushed in a direction on, on something like just pronouns in schools. Right. Um, but when she added on all of the other layers that's what is incredibly disappointing. I want to ask, there's one other news news item that to me was so significant. Um, and it got buried in all of this. And we have a fight pending on it because um, that's what we do here. But on Tuesday, there was a press conference with Dale Nally um, of the, well, I'm not going to wear my mask at the Hockey Arena fame during the peak of COVID. We remember Dale. Um, but he had a press conference and he was asked about the pending um, policy. And in the press conference, he answered that. And then the live stream was deleted. And then the video was deleted and it was replaced by a video that edited out his answer. And that, to me, is a conversation that I think that we need to have because when the government starts to edit what live events are, um, it seems like we're, it feels like, and this is where I'm going to ask for your, your expertise, but it feels like once we start to edit our press conferences, we've crossed over a line into something particularly dystopian. Um, am I reading that wrong? Was it just like a whoops? Or I, I, I don't understand that the, the why the wherefore is what what happened there. Uh, I know you've covered that. I was more struck by one of the answers that Dale Daly gave, uh, which seemed to be the cabinet hadn't been told about any of this stuff, right? And so I'm watching that going. Well, if the teachers haven't been, um, consulted and uh, parent councils hadn't been consulted 
and sport organizations hadn't been consulted and doctors hadn't been consulted psychologists hadn't been consulted um and now apparently cabinet hadn't been consulted you know that raises again who was she speaking to besides uh tucker carlson and jordan peterson and this was the other thing that she said on her newscast on the, the radio show that led to this and, and i'm going to repeat what we said that the, the previous interview of last week that she wanted to depoliticize this how the hell do you depoliticize that when much of carlson's stand-up routine was demonizing trans people right um how do you depoliticize it when you've got david parker calling them evil and teachers are a groomer and i foresee i get a lot of pushback on a lot of things i say okay uh, i'm a public figure so be it um, but when it was over COVID or climate change, it was more people trying to show me that I was wrong. And here's a study and ivermectin really works. And why don't you consider ivermectin? And the hockey uh, stick graph is completely wrong. And here's our data from the Friends of Science. Sure, fine, okay. That's not what I have been getting over the trans issue. The trans issue isn't, Dwayne, you're stupid. It's, Dwayne, you're a groomer, right? There is a fundamental difference here that is going on, and it really is absolute demonization of these people, uh, of, of, of trans people, and of the teaching profession, and of doctors, anyone who is considered an ally, because I'm not trans, I am not gay, I am a... I'm still going to say middle-aged, white, heterosexual dude. But I feel we're the sort of people who have to stand up. There's a reason we have minority rights, right? And if you talk about the abortion issue, that's something that affects, you know, half the population, right? You talk about the the, the gay population, you're talking 2 to 3% of the population. The trans population is what? 0.25%. So we're getting smaller and smaller groups. Someone has to speak up for those that are fearful. Well, and I think that there's also a requirement, and this, this goes to uh, the the privilege conversation that we've been having on this show for the last several years, but I think that there's, there's something that, that if you find yourself in a position of privilege, how you get to define yourself is in no small part measured by how you use your privilege. And if you're willing to sit by and let somebody punch down on, on kids, um, because people might not like you as much. I don't know. Like, I don't, so, if somebody wants to call me a groomer on the internet, which they do, I mean, the number of blocked accounts that the breakdown has had to block in the last two weeks has been almost as much as we've had in our entire five years. But so you're seeing a fundamental difference then for when you talked about pensions or oh, uh, I'd love climate to know change or it. even COVID. Yeah. I'd love to know who's paying for these bot farms because, like, the number of accounts that haven't tweeted since 2012. Uh, that are all of a sudden deeply invested in in calling the the breakdown a bunch of groomers is <clears throat> I'm not stupid. Somebody's paying for this, and the fact that it blew up immediately after that video was released, like I know correlation doesn't equal causation, 
but at a certain point you have to go you know i've noticed that it rains when it's cloudy maybe the clouds have something to do with it so i don't often listen to podcasts right after they occur so today this afternoon uh, I listened to the Curse of Politics uh, podcast, which is which is very good. Uh, David Hurley, Scott Reed, Jordan Likeness, and uh, Corey Kanenke. Uh And I even enjoyed it when Jenny Byrne was on there because I thought she was quite entertaining and insightful until she was actually involved in regular politics. Anyway, they were talking about, they, they spent an inordinate amount of time on Alberta politics for some reason. And obviously this issue came up. And they're talking about the political calculations of Trudeau waiting in on this. And, you know, what are the political strategies? And Jordan Likeness made a comment and says, forget about the political strategies. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But there was a moral imperative that goes beyond what are the calculations here. So we're hearing, you know, that that when Nenshi gave that fiery speech at the Calgary rally, you know, I called it a campaign speech, uh, which I probably, I believed it. That's what I said. But that's not why he gave it. No. He was not, he, he did not give that speech because he's likely to run for the leadership of the NDP. He gave it out of a moral imperative. And we've heard from, the NDP, we've heard from, um, you know, uh, academics, we've heard from trans youth and adults and the medical community. You know who's been, re and of course, Take Back Alberta and David Parker doing his victory lap. You know who we haven't heard from? The UCP Cabinet Caucus. Some of them have retweeted stuff. But who has come up with a video? Who has come up with a statement with absolute affirmation of what Daniel Smith is saying? Uh, Tanya Fur uh, walked into a hornet's nest, but at least she met with them. But she never really defended the policies, right? She said, I was there to listen and all of that. Who is giving, you know, the silence is deafening here. And it's complicit. Yeah. Now, um, <laughs> one of the persons who did give a positive statement was Jennifer Johnson, and maybe she should have stayed a bit quiet on this particular file, you know. Uh, but how do you keep her out of caucus now? Oh, she's in. I have zero doubts. I have zero. If if the line is now, we're going to demonize trans kids. We're going to make. But as long as you don't call them feces, then it's okay. Yeah. Is that the, the rule? As long as you say, I love them, and then demonize them, that's okay? Apparently, it's good enough for the Premier of Alberta. Yeah. Um, We're going to have to have you on again sometime soon so we can talk about the NDP leadership race, because there's going to be all those things, and we talked about the Nenji thing, but I don't... We, we have time. <laughs> yeah, it's there's there's only one of them's announced, I believe, so far, so... Yeah. Um, I mean, here's here's the question from a high level, <clears throat> excuse me, from a high level political viewpoint, historically, and I'm going to use a little bit of language here uh, because it's really the only term that I can think of. Um, how do we unfuck this? It's tough to put the genie back in the bottle. It, it is really going to be difficult to to do that. 
Smith had an opportunity of doing that. She chose not to. She had an opportunity to say, I'm going to go on the side of children. I'm going to go on the side of parents. I'm going to go on the side of medical professionals. And I'm going to stand up to the bullies. She's the premier of the province. She is riding high in the polls. She has just won a majority government. She could have done that. And it would have fit with her. I still maintain personal beliefs. Um, and she did. She did. She chose not to. If Jason Kenney had announced these policies, it fits with his worldview. <laughs> right. Uh, there's no contradiction there. You know, he would have made the personal calculation and the political calculation, and those would have melded and so on and so forth. Smith made the exact opposite. This was this was a uh, a leadership opportunity. And I, and I mentioned earlier the, the uh, uh, John F. Kennedy's famous book, Profiles in Courage, which was about people standing up to their party, standing up to opposition, standing up to everything that you know, had previously been done and going contrary to that, this would have been a profile and courage moment. And she chose not to, and in fact, made it, made it worse, made it a lot worse. And there are going to be, there's going to be consequences, even if the actual suite of policies that come down the line, you know, in eight to 10 months aren't nearly as bad and draconian as what was announced. The damage is done. I wish I could disagree with you, um, but I can't. So, um, you know what? Stepping Stone is uh, is taking donations. They're going to be doing a, a legal challenge. They've got a couple other people that they're doing it. Uh, I mean, it's tough to do a legal challenge when you don't have a policy to go against. Right? But they're getting ready. So yeah, they're getting ready. I think that that's one thing that that people can do if they feel like they want to do something in the interim while we wait for for Smith to unveil this horror show. But the other thing that I think you know that is is something that people can do is don't be afraid to call it out publicly. Like if if. If you have the, if you've got a Twitter page, if you've got a Facebook page and you're not a bigot, then say, this is some bullshit right here. Because on the off chance that there's even one person who sees that, who is currently feeling targeted and they're made to feel a little bit less alone, I mean, it, it doesn't cost you anything. Is there anything you'd like to add, Dr. Brad, before we wrap it up? I'm not. A psychologist, and uh, and I'm not um, a professional in this area, so it, it it's tough for me to provide advice. But I would give some advice, um, and that's if you're a parent and you suspect that your child is having these thoughts, maybe trans is confused about gender identity and you have been waiting for them to make a decision and come to you maybe you go to them first say i'm here for you i understand how difficult this is i understand the uh the situation in the in the province has completely changed over the last week and a half 
is there anything you would like to to say? And maybe they're not ready yet. And maybe they'll deny it. Um, but you have reached out. That's some excellent advice. Dr. Dwayne Bratt, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to chat today and follow up. And we will have hopefully a much more more lighthearted conversation about the NDP leadership race uh, in the coming weeks because there's going to be no shortage of, of subject matter there. But I really appreciate that the, you took the time to have this conversation tonight. I really appreciate that you reached out to say, let's, wow, this is so bad. We got to address this right well, away. And um, I, I'm sorry, I've, I've got emotional a couple of times, but this is different from a debate or a discussion about pensions. This is different than a debate about the Sovereignty Act. This is different than discussing climate policy. We're talking about children. I don't think you need to apologize for being emotional about that, sir. I think that, if anything, that's what's missing in this conversation. And I'd love to see some of it from the Premier. I think that's that's our show, folks. Thank you so much for for watching, for listening, um, and uh, thank you again to to Dr. Brat. Thanks, thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me. And that's it for another episode of the Breakdown. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here, we would love nothing more than if you thought about signing up to be one of our Patreon sponsors at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab, where for just the price of a fancy cup of coffee a month, you can help us continue to produce this kind of content. Whether you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, in which case maybe leave a, a review and a rating or whether you're watching it on one of our streaming platforms. We want to say a big thank you to everybody who is part of the Breakdown's audience. And as always, take care of each other and keep the conversation going.